So today's sermon title is Beyond Relationality to Union, Musings Toward a Pneumodynamic Approach to Personality and Psychopathology. <laughs> Why do you laugh? We are capable of this. <laughs> now, some of you will know the name John Coe. That's actually the title of an article he wrote in a, the journal of, do I have that here? The Journal of Psychology and Christianity uh, 17 years ago. Somebody gave it to me. I can't remember who now. It could have been Elizabeth or somebody who knows John gave it to me. And I've been thinking about it for a couple years and for the last uh, couple years been using it in my courses in spiritual formation, and uh, it will help inform some of what we want to do this morning. So Luke 13, as we just heard read to us, says, unless you repent. And the whole point of this section of Scripture is to focus on that word you, because what Jesus is seeing is that the people were thinking, well, those people who died in those calamities, you know, well, they were the bad people. So of course they died in those calamities. But Jesus wants them to see their own need to change, to repent, to alter the alignment of their life. And he says, unless you do, you'll also likewise perish. So I want to help us think through this morning, what does repent and perish and bear fruit mean? What is it that Jesus is trying to get at? So let's start with repentance. Repentance, first of all, assumes a few things if we're going to have any understanding of what the word means or what it's intended to actually do in us. And the first thing that repentance says to us is that there is a way that things are meant to be, right? You can't realign to something unless there's a something, right? I can't say go near this microphone unless there's a microphone. So the notion of changing means that there is a stable way of being. So you have analogies in the scriptures like a plumb line, right? Those kinds of things. So the first thing repentance tells us, and I might just say you might notice that in a culture like ours today that's instinctually progressive, and I'm not saying that that's all bad, but just I want you to note that it's instinctually progressive, and it struggles with the notion that there is truth. And again, I don't mean to put that down. I actually have great empathy for people who are struggling with that. But the word repentance immediately says, no, there, there is a way that things are meant to be. And secondly, it tells us that this way can be found. What's the point of saying that there is a way that things are meant to be if a human being can't find that path? And it means this is the heart of it now, that to find that way and to go that way, we have to change the way we're thinking and living. And that in so doing, Jesus says, we won't perish. And perish just simply means we won't experience the destruction of our soul, our soul being that um, most crucial, inner, hidden part of us, that, that immaterial part of us that is most closely connected with God won't perish. But on the other hand, in so doing and repenting, we'll find life in union with God, whose fruit is just the natural byproduct, so that bearing fruit is a natural product of that. Well, what is this way that Jesus means to get at? What is the primary vision of God's intention in the Bible? And this is where I think John's article is so helpful. John makes an argument in this article for the main thing that God's up to in the Christian life is our spirit being in union with God's spirit. 
And this, of course, isn't surprising for those of you who have read Paul's letters. Um, it would appear that the very heart of Pauline theology is union with Christ. The words in Christ or Christ in me are used in Paul more than 170 times. You know, sometimes we think of Paul as, you know, the guy who gave his justification by faith or whatever, but what he seemed to be obsessed about is the union of human beings with their maker, that, that people would come to see the spiritual reality of union with Christ and how it could interpenetrate. It's John's word, I love it. Interpenetrate, that is to say, Christ in me, me in Christ, and that there would be this interpenetration of the Spirit of God with my spirit leading to a whole different kind of life. And I just want to say, if we get a clear vision for this, lots of good things happen in terms of Lent and in terms of repentance. If we just think of it, that if union with God is actually at the core of everything that's going on, then it helps us with a lot of good things. And, and this, to me anyway, is at the heart of Coe's article. The first thing it does, if that's the case, if union is what's really going on, is it helps us answer the question of human ontology. Sorry for the big word. Ontology just means being. And so it helps us understand what is a self. And like, do you have to create one? Or do you have one? And what is it? What is a self? Well, union with God begins to help us answer that. It helps us understand something about human capabilities, which again, putting that on street level language is something like, what should I be doing? What am I capable of in union with God? And how might that inform what I should be doing with my life? Or, sorry for another big word, but teleology, which telos just simply means the end. Like, what are the ends of human union with God? Why did God purpose union with humans? says something about our potential, what you could become. Like, can, can you, so, I mean, I know I have a hard time with this. I would just assume you do. Like, every time I think of Revelation 22.5, and they will ruin, they, us, will rule and reign with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. And then, you know, I go up to, um, just went out of my head, I go up to the, um, the, you know, the place in L.A. with the telescopes and, you know, you can see, you know, what is it called? <laughs> go up to Griffith Park and go through the, all the exhibits and stuff and you just think, oh my gosh, what can this possibly mean? That I'm called into that. What, what can that possibly mean? What will it mean to rule and reign with God? To be in union with him on that level. If union with Christ is core to everything, then it says something about health. What is human health? What is wholeness? What is this thing we say we're shooting for? What is well-being? What is shalom? And then what John wants to get to in this article is that it helps us see what is human psychopathology. That is our word for that is brokenness, right? That's the street level language for that. You know, we're all broken, we say. Well, broken with reference to what? And again, if union with God is what is there, then it helps us understand sin and suffering. So now setting aside those big level thoughts that I think are important and that I've tried to put on a lower shelf, I think what I want to say is this, that repentance and, and thus the season of Lent is not very interesting or compelling when this vision of union is not in place. 
When we think of repentance to mean something that's just like mere moralisms or moral uprightness or expressions of regret or merely somehow um, you know, grudgingly changing our behavior, it's not very interesting. It's not very compelling. But repentance becomes compelling once we see that it refers to an entirely reoriented self. Just stop there with me. An entirely reoriented self through union with God. That makes repentance a whole lot better than giving up candy or something, right? I mean, it puts something in front of us that actually is compelling. So that's repentance. So what is about this notion of bearing fruit? That can sound a little utilitarian. And like, really, you're going to take an ax to this tree and cut it down? Like, really, people perished all over the wilderness? Like, what's going on here? This doesn't sound like our, you know, loving, gracious God. It sounds rather utilitarian, like he's just using human beings. So what is this connection between repentance, again, construed as union, as reconciling, being reconciled and in union with our God? What is the connection between that and fruit bearing? And the answer is simply this. It's the natural result of what Jesus taught in John 15 of vine and branch union. So John 15 is the classic Jesus passage on this, in which he sees a branch being attached to the vine, and it then causing the kind of life, the kind of union in which fruit is natural. Now, we see in our Corinthians reading that this is in contrast with Israel's historic pattern of failing to be the people of God of failing to provide the kind of fruit or bear the kind of fruit that is the natural effect of union, of divine life flowing through us, of the inner DNA of God's intention, right? Like, so like DNA obviously has a physical capability to it or our forensic people couldn't test it, right? So picture that in your mind. I, I don't know what DNA actually looks like. I've never looked like it under the, you know, I've seen crime shows, but like you all have, but right? So there's a physicality to DNA, but anything that exists requires a previous personhood, right? There's no nest without a bird. There's no piece of software without a writer. Anything that exists has a previously existing personhood attached to it. So it's not just our physical DNA but what's underneath that? Kind of like a spiritual DNA of God's intention. And that as that comes through us into public, you might say, that is the fruit that God has always been intending. So sometimes you hear that expressed in the sense of mission or social justice or ethics or love. But I don't think it can be reduced to any of those things. It's the totality of God's intention for humanity um, because of that vine branch union being expressed through us. And this, to me, is what helps us get to the deeper work of repentance. As I said, being connected to this bigger story of God. Can you recall the parable of the tenant farmers? Where Jesus tells this story of people being given a plot of land. They're given everything they need for that plot of land to be fruitful. Everything. The right amount of water, good soil, people to care for it, toil. Everything is made completely suitable for that land to bear fruit. And when the farmer comes to get the rewards of his fruit, you remember they kill the prophets and finally kill the son. 
And Jesus says, this will be taken away from you. Again, this is why Lent and repentance can't be simply just about sins. Like, I wish I didn't swear so much. Or I wish I told the truth more. It can't be reduced to that. Those things can be included in a reoriented life, but it can't be reduced to that because there's this bigger story going on where what Jesus is actually asking for is a serious turning away from the patterns of life that, that deface and distort our genuine humanness. It isn't just a matter of feeling sorry for particular sins. It's the recognition that the living God has made us humans in union with him to reflect his image into his world. And Jesus is, and these readings are simply saying humans often fail to do this. And this is what the Bible means by sin, to miss that basic mark of fruit bearing out of union with Christ. Everything else is sins, plural, that all get caught up into that bigger idea. Some of you maybe have heard the name uh, James K.A. Smith in his books, um, Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom, and his newest book, You Are What You Love. Um, Jamie's a philosopher from the Midwest. We had him out uh, up in San Francisco last weekend to speak to um, my clergy. And in that talk, um, Jamie said some things that I thought were really helpful to our Lenten journey. And the, the one thing he said that has stuck with me is a little phrase called, curate your heart. Curate a heart. I can understand what it might mean to curate a museum or to, you know, curate an art gallery. What might it mean to curate a human heart? And if you know Jamie's writings, you know that he means to say something like to be attentive to and to be intentional about what you love. And this is what the reading in Isaiah is getting to. Why spend money on that which is not bread and your labor on that which doesn't satisfy? That is to say, recognize your thirst and your consumptions and alter it to that which is free and real and that really satisfies. And what Jamie wants to remind us is that our choices are not primary or first in sequence, that what we love and desire is what leads to our choices. And this is the other thing he said that I'm not shortly to forget, and I give it to you in a way that I hope will be a great gift, and that's this. The Eucharist is not just food. It teaches us to hunger for a different kind of food. Now, the rest of our lives, we'll be doing this together. And I just want you to think, week in, week out. This is not just food. It teaches us to hunger, to have appetites for a different kind of food and to be nourished in a way that union is there and therefore natural fruitfulness. So what Jesus means in John 6 when he says, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. So thinking again, lastly here of our reading in Corinthians, Paul says that Israel's up and down history and their struggling with this kind of union leading to fruit bearing was recorded for us as examples, he says, to keep us and then hear his language from setting our hearts. And this is what Jamie's getting at. This is an example that's not merely behavioral. Why? 
Well, first of all, because your temptations aren't going to be anything like what their temptations were. This can't be simply behavioral. It's about helping us set our hearts on the right things. And so what I want to commend to you for the rest of Lent is this notion as of discipleship as the rehabituation of our heart, of our loves and desires, so that they bring us ever closer to union, to that inner penetration of Christ's life in us and our life in Christ. I mean, we sing this all the time in that hymn, Come Thou Fount of Ever Blessing. Remember that line we sing all the time? Tune my heart. Tune my heart. So hear that prayer. Lord, tune my heart as I seek to work on my heart in union with you. And so the vision here in these scriptures, if we wrap them all up together, is a life in union with God leading to fruit, which just simply requires us in these Lenten disciplines to just learn to pay attention, to become aware of ourselves and others and to God in the various moments of our lives. And to do, as a mentor of mine said, just the next right thing based on your current ability. And then don't keep trying to do what's right, but train yourself in these disciplines so that the you you bring to your moments is a different you based on just giving ourselves to these little disciplines with the prayer that this kind of inner penetration would come to our lives. And that this process, this natural process of a, of a um, branch abiding in a vine would be a process that leads to a new me, a new you, and to a preferable future. So in conclusion, Isaiah said these great Lenten words, seek, call. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked abandon their way of life and the evil their way of thinking. Let them come back to God who is merciful. Come back to our God who is lavish with forgiveness. That's the language of Lent. That's the language of repentance that leads to reconciliation, that leads to union, that leads to bearing fruit, and that leads to the opposite of perishing but to human flourishing. We bow our heads now for a moment of quiet. I want to commend to you that in these last few weeks of Lent, to wonder to yourself, just based on where you are right now, just honestly, without judgment, what do you seek? What do you find yourself seeking this Lent? Or maybe you'd like to ask yourself, how would you like to call upon God? Or maybe this, what way of life or way of thinking do you sense the Spirit wants to work on with you? So pick the one that works for your heart. What do you seek? How would you like to call upon God? How do you sense the Spirit wanting to work with you?